we are kind of in, in between some series here. Usually at the beginning of the year, we, we really kind of reshift our focus back to the gospel accounts. In fact, we've done this every year that we've been around as a church, where between Christmas and Easter, we try to really focus in on one of the gospel accounts. And maybe you've noticed the last couple of weeks we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in the Gospel of Matthew again today. Uh, and then we'll probably take a couple of diversions the next couple of weeks before we settle back into Matthew for a little bit longer series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, which is funny to have a bunch of sermons about one sermon, I know, um, but I'm not just going to read you the Sermon on the Mount one time. We'll actually spend a little time with it. And then in the summer, we'll come back to Matthew again, and we'll be studying the Lord's Prayer. So we'll be all over the Gospel of Matthew uh, in the next six months or so. And today, we're going to look at what may be a very familiar passage to many of you. It's in Matthew chapter 2, and it is the visit of the Magi. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew 2. I'll be reading to us from uh, starting in verse 1 through the end of verse 12, I believe. Listen now to God's word from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we come needing you to work this morning. We ask that your spirit would be present as we open your word. Will you enlighten where there is darkness? Will you soften where there is hardness? Lord, will you lift the scales off of our eyes and unstop our ears that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning? And Lord, that we might come as these wise men and worship to bow down, to kneel before you our Savior, and our King. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, as I am sometimes want to do, maybe some of you are like this as well, I, I fell down a bit of a Netflix rabbit hole the other day watching different documentaries, and the one I kind of got stuck on was called Icarus. It is a documentary about basically uh, sports doping. 
about performance-enhancing drugs, and much of it actually ends up centering around the Russian sports, you know, Olympic sports team, and this incredible statewide conspiracy of doping for all of their athletes. In so many of the Olympics, uh, we started to see this huge medal counts of Russian athletes, and there was a reason. Not only were they great athletes, they actually had a little bit of help from the Russian scientists, and so this uh, this this documentary really details this in incredible um, system for swapping out, you know, blood and urine and, and, and really like sneaking in and, and the, uh, the, the KGB, you know, at work actually getting the right samples to the right places. It's crazy. Of course, the Russians aren't the only ones who were addicted to winning at all costs. One of the people also that's highlighted in this documentary is Lance Armstrong, I'm sure you've heard Lance Armstrong's story, winner of seven Tour de France's, which have now been stripped from him because it has been, uh, it has been found out. He has finally confessed that he was actually using performance-enhancing drugs in all of those races. And for years and years and years, he would deny it. And he put up huge fights to fight, you know, all of these accusations. And he would unequivocally say, I've never taken any sort of drugs. And finally, all of the evidence kind of came crumbling down on him. And he finally confessed his guilt. And this is what he said, actually, in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. Listen to the reason behind what he did. He said, my ruthless desire to win at all costs served me well on the bike, but the level it went to, for whatever reason, is a flaw. That desire, that attitude, that arrogance, I was a bully to those around me, and I tried to control the narrative, and if I didn't like what someone said, I turned on them. See, it wasn't just using the drugs for Lance. It was using the drugs and then forming a complete organization of keeping down anybody who might resist him. It was a, it was, it was a system then of, of pressing down all those who might challenge his authority. It was him turning on people because there was a worship of winning. That's really what Lance is talking about. He worshiped winning. Winning was the ultimate thing. It was the thing that he would sacrifice everything for, whether that was friends or family or teammates or the truth or his own reputation. It was all sacrificed at the idol of winning because it was the most important thing in his life. It's what he worshiped. Whether you are the Russian Olympic organization or Lance Armstrong Sometimes I think we can kind of end up building straw men out of these folks and forget that we do the same thing all the time, don't we? Is that we have things that we build our lives around, that we worship, that we then sacrifice everything in order to serve. I really like my leisure time. And I really like to be in control of most things. And very oftentimes it's those two things that can kind of end up at the center of my life. And the people I love and the things in my life start to revolve around those things, not as humans or as good gifts of God, but as objects for me to sacrifice to my idol of leisure or of control. Because we all, as Bob Dylan wrote, worship something. 
We are born to worship. What we have laid out here in Matthew 2 for us is really a description of what worship looks like. And some of the worship that we see happening in Matthew 2 is good and appropriate. Some of it is absolutely, completely wrong. Some of it is surprising. Some of it is absent where it should be. But I think it's a helpful passage for us to turn our hearts to understanding what is it that we worship? Who is it that we worship? And maybe even more so, if you're a Christian, are you worshiping the one that you proclaim to worship? There are three kind of main characters, actually, in this passage that are all going to give us a glimpse into what worship is. There's Herod. There's the scribes and the, and the, uh, and the chief priests. And then there's also the Magi, and we're going to look at all three of those. So let's first look at Herod. Who is this guy, Herod? Well, history tells us his name is oftentimes called Herod the Great. He is, and I'm using quotes here, the king of the Jews, and I'm using quotes because king is a little bit of a misnomer. Herod, as all of Israel was at the time, was under the control of the Roman government, And so Herod was actually set up by the Romans as kind of a puppet king. He's king, he's in charge, but he's not really in charge because he actually reports to Caesar. And history tells us he was actually really good at building a lot of things, tons of kind of infrastructure projects in Herod's rule. He actually expanded the temple, even though Jewish law didn't call for it. And he expanded a lot of other things even bigger, like his own palace, which was really, really nice. He built roads and walls and palaces, and he built them so that people could look on and say, wow, something good is going on there in Judea. I wonder if that king kind of has something going on. But also historians will tell us not only was he a really great infrastructure builder, he actually did all of that by being a pretty ruthless guy too. Uh, One historian said it was better to be a pig in Herod's household than to be a son because in deference to the Jewish law, he wouldn't slaughter a pig, but he killed three of his own sons along with his wife, along with anybody else really who stood in his way because Herod had one thing that he worshiped and that was power. He wanted power. Now the irony to all of this is that the kings of the Old Testament coming into the New Testament, the kings of Israel were always meant to be stand-ins. They were always meant to be stewards. They were meant to be the people who were the stewards of God's people that were waiting actually for the real king to arrive. They were the ones who were taking care of the kingdom while they waited for the king to arrive. If you have read or seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and let's just go ahead and get this out of the way, I've not read a word of it. I've seen the movies. Generally speaking, when somebody says the, the book is so much better than the movie, they're not adjusting for time, okay? So if you adjust for time, movies are usually, they're usually pretty good. They flatten it out pretty good. And the Lord of the Rings movies are pretty darn good. And in the third movie, and in the third book, for those readers, don't, you know, Don't put any of this on Facebook, okay? Uh, In the third movie, The Return of the King, one of the main characters is this guy who's called the Steward of Gondor. And he's the king. He's the ruler of this city, this kind of, uh, this realm, this country city called Gondor. But the king is back. 
The whole book is called The Return of the King. And the job of the steward of Gondor is to keep Gondor safe and secure and prosperous while he's waiting for the king to come back and take his rightful throne. He's keeping the king's seat warm while the king is away. But what's supposed to happen when the king returns is that the steward is supposed to step out of the way and say, I've done the job of keeping things the way that you would want me to. I have been faithful in this and now come and take your rightful place. But like most humans, the steward of Gondor in this story does not want to let go of his power. In fact, it drives him so crazy, he cannot stand the idea of the real king returning to come and take his throne that he ends up taking his own life at the end. Because his lust for power, what he worships is control and power. And when there is a king that comes to say that the power belongs to him, boy, it puts him in a precarious position, doesn't it? And I think that's good for us to remember too. Because the proclamation of the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, you are not. The proclamation of the New Testament is that Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, I am not king. The proclamation of the Gospels is that Jesus is sovereign over all things. To Jesus belongs all glory and honor and praise. And if that is true, that means that it doesn't belong to me. And that kind of stings, doesn't it? Because we love to have our little kingdoms. We love to have our power. We love to have our control. We love to have our leisure. We love to have everything the way that we want it. And boy, if there's something that comes in there and starts to make us a little nervous that that might be taken away, we can react just like Herod. We get angry. We actually see Herod is greatly distressed, Matthew tells us in that passage. And then what I didn't read to you in the next verse is that he is so distressed that he goes on to wipe out all of the male babies in all of the country. Now, we may not react like that, but in our hearts, we can oftentimes have that same seed, can't we, of insecurity. I don't want my little kingdom messed with. I don't want you to take away my little bit of control. I don't want you to take away my little bit of leisure. I don't want you to take away the things that I like. Let me just ask, what is it that you worship do you worship your own security? Do you worship your own pleasure? Maybe your children's achievements in the classroom or on the sports field? Maybe it's control. Maybe it's leisure. Maybe it's the accumulation of all the things that you think are gonna give you the status in your life. Maybe it's the approval of others. Maybe it's your looks or your weight. Maybe it's your job or your car or your watch or your house or your family or your good name, whatever it is. If there's something else that's in the center of your life, then friends, you're not worshiping the king. You're worshiping yourself. That's the first example of worship that we have here in this passage is Herod. And it's a good example of what oftentimes lives in our own hearts. Let's move on. There's a second group here as well. They are the scribes and the chief priests, Matthew tells us. That's who Herod calls when he hears about the birth of the king. And these are an interesting 
group of folks. The chief priests are a religious order. If you read through the Old Testament, especially uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see that the chief priest, that the priesthood is there to show God's people how to worship, to lead them in worship, to lead them actually to worshiping the right things. But by this time, actually in Israel, the chief priests had become not just a religious, but actually a political kind of entity as well. And so they held political power. And the scribes then were actually the folks who also were kind of this weird religious political mix, but they were probably uh, more biblically literate than just about anybody else because they're the people who actually copied the Bible and disseminated it and taught people the Bible. They were the protectors of God's law. They were the Bible teachers of the time. In fact, one commentator actually uh, translates this as the senior pastors and the Bible teachers. Herod gathered him together for himself, the senior pastors and the Bible teachers, and they all got together to give advice to the king on what he should do about the birth of the Messiah. And this is so interesting, I think. They don't call a conference to talk about it. We're not told that they all get together and wonder, gosh, you know, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Who, who is this kind of Messiah? We, we've never heard this term. No, of course. They know exactly who it is. They know exactly where he's supposed to be born. It's in Bethlehem, and they tell Herod immediately, this is what we know because we've been studying it, and it's a known thing. The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is about six miles away from Jerusalem where they were. But guess who we don't read about showing up at the birth of the Christ? The scribes and the chief priests, the senior pastors and the Bible teachers, whose response to the birth of the Messiah was, eh, whatever. Their response to Jesus' birth to this announcement was complacency. We've got our world We've got our good life. Things seem to be going okay. Herod listens to us. He calls us. We don't want to rough, ruffle the feathers. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to really do anything to kind of upset the apple cart. So let's just do nothing. The history of the church is actually full of this. In the American South, hundreds of churches were not only complicit and complacent, not only complacent, but also complicit about slavery. In Germany, hundreds of churches just went right alongside Hitler and said, you know what, we're not going to rock the boat. Everything will be okay. The church is filled with those stories of God's people just kind of saying, eh, I guess it'll be all right. I probably shouldn't do anything. Let's just sit back and do nothing. James has harsh words for those who know but don't do. Yeah, I know that vegetables are good for me but I choose to eat cake instead. I know that I will grow in closeness and devotion to the Lord when I spend time reading my Bible and in prayer, but I choose not to often. I know that my relationship with my wife will increase and deepen when I serve her and love her, but instead, I'm oftentimes selfish. We know, but we don't do. Where are the places where we are just complacent in our lives? Where are the places in our lives where we've just decided, you know what, I guess somebody else will do that? Where are the places in our lives where we've just kind of responded to the best news that's ever been proclaimed in the history of the world 
with, eh, meh, I guess it'll be all right. Friends, that is not the response of a worshiper (laughs) to just sit on your hands and do nothing. The response is actually coming in this passage from a very strange place. It's coming from these folks that we read here as wise men whose name really in the text is Magi. Listen again to the way that they respond. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly to ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. But after listening to the king, they went on their way guided by the star. And when it came to rest over the place where the child was, when they saw it, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They fell down. They worshiped him. They offered him gifts. It's helpful to remember who these folks are, and, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to ruin for you every nativity scene you've ever seen. And this is, uh, this is you don't have to pay extra for this. This is free uh, just because I like to crush people's dreams. But uh, the Magi, first of all, probably were not there, almost assuredly were not there at the same time as the shepherds. They probably showed up a good time later to Bethlehem. And you know, the Bible actually never tells us how many Magi were there. We always think it's three. Every picture we see, there's three of them. Every nativity scene, we see there's three, but we're actually not told how many there are there. It could be 20, could be 50, could be 10. We're just told that they brought these gifts, and among those gifts that they brought, there happened to be gold and frankincense and myrrh, but we're not told that there were three of them. So why do we always say that there are three of them? I don't know. Again, that's an aside. I'm a dream crusher. Just take that and do with it what you want. But here's the really important thing, I think, to take from that, is that the Magi were also probably not who you think they are. They were not Jewish. They probably were not even God-fearers in any way. They were pagan magicians. They were astrologers. They were some sort of weird mix probably of scientist and magician. They were from Babylonia, Persia, what we now would know as as Iran. And they actually were there to, to kind of read the stars and figure out what they meant. Astronomy and astrology at that time were all kind of combined into one thing. So figuring out what stars were there also was part and parcel with figuring out what they meant. They were the kind of people who would also work with interpreting dreams. If you remember back from our series in Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar has these crazy dreams or when he sees these visions, the first people he calls are actually these guys, the magi. They're the magicians, the astrologers, the pseudoscientists. They're the ones who are trying to figure out the things that nobody else can figure out. They are pagan magicians. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, when we hear this word magi or magos, which is the Greek word that's there, it's almost always in a negative context. It's really part and parcel. It's really coterminous with being an idolater. They're the people who are believing the wrong things. But here we have these folks who don't even worship the Lord, who are traveling probably upwards of a thousand miles to come and see this king being born, who have left their homes and their families 
and are on foot or on camel or in some sort of caravan traveling for days and weeks and months and years even on end to come and bow down and fall down before the king of the world. Isn't that amazing? It's the people that we don't expect who show up in this passage to be doing the thing that we would expect everybody else to be doing. It's not the steward of God's people who comes to fall down on his knees before the king. It's not the scribes and the chief priests, the senior pastors and the Bible teachers. It's the pagans. We see this actually throughout the Bible. If you remember in the book of Jonah, at the first chapter of Jonah, we get this great uh, wind on the sea, and, and Jonah is there with all of these pagan sailors, and Jonah has already declared himself to be a prophet of the Lord, and he is the one who's running away from God. And at the end of that first chapter, what we see is actually all of the pagan, uh, all the pagan sailors proclaiming God's goodness. We see it in Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming God's goodness. We see it at the end of Jonah, of course, when the Ninevites are proclaiming God's goodness and repenting. And so one of the big things that the Bible is oftentimes doing that God is doing in these kind of stories of Gentiles, of pagans acting the way that God's people should be acting, one of the big implications is, hey, people of God, do you see how it's supposed to be done? The folks that you have hated, the folks that you have called outsiders, the folks that you have pushed away, the people that are on the outside are actually acting like you should act. Wake up, people of God, and see what it looks like to worship. But it's also the way that the entirety of the gospel account will be structured. Because the gospel is upside down news for us. Jesus will continue to gather to himself outsiders. He will continue to gather to himself foreigners, idolaters. Matthew tells us in that he spends a whole first chapter of his gospel outlining uh, the, the background of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. And guess who shows up in that genealogy? A lot of unsavory people, outsiders, foreigners, Gentiles, prostitutes, abused, abusers, young teen moms. Jesus will continue to work in this way. He'll continue to do everything that we would never expect. The creator of the world, taking on flesh, becoming one of his creations, that's crazy talk. The king, the, the master who would get down on his knees and serve his servants, that's crazy talk. A king who would sacrifice his own life for his subjects, that is the beautiful economy of the gospel, isn't it? That foreign idolaters, like you and me, would be welcomed to come in and adore the king. So let me just leave you with this question. How do we respond when the king has shown up in our lives? Are we going to be like the scribes and the chief priests and just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, you know, not that big of a deal. We'll deal with it later. Are we going to be like Herod? Self-protection? Keep my own power? 
protect my little fiefdom. Don't let anything come in that might upset things. Are we going to be like the Magi to come even to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy to come and fall down before the Lord, to kneel in worship before the one who is not only worthy because he is glorious and majestic, but worthy because he loves, he loves to come to outsiders. He loves to come to foreign idolaters like you and me. He loves to come to those who are self-protective. He loves to come to those who shrug their shoulders. He loves to come and take us up and say, it's you who I've come to live and die for. It's you who I've come to serve. It's you who I've come to love, even to death. Friends, that's worth worshiping. Let's pray. Father in heaven, spirit who indwells and lives among us, son who gives his life for us, glorious triune God, thank you for the incarnation. Let us respond in the only appropriate way or to come and fall down before you, to give you our gifts, to proclaim your goodness, to worship. Show us what that means even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.